This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 24, Americans Look to the Sea Again. In the early 1880s, a new mood stirs. Modernization. Not for the merchant marine, but for the Navy with the construction of four steel warships equipped with sails as well as engines. They were not battleships, but they were light and fast, cruisers designed more to show the flag than to fight an enemy fleet. These steel ships, built from steel forged in the USA, formed another milestone, a new industry, American manufacturers had no previous experience in rolling large steel plates or in forging the great guns that modern warships demanded. The steel squadron appealed to the nation, seeming to encourage technological development overall. This was perceived as an exciting new era. A salivating Congress sees pork barrel possibilities, that is, political capital to be derived from encouraging construction at naval yards in their home districts. Labor likes it, too, with the promise of more high-paying jobs. Thus, we already have the germs of the military-industrial complex about which Dwight Eisenhower would warn when he left the presidency. An alliance among military bureaucracy, big business, and organized labor favoring armaments. Today, we could add intellectuals who are committed to an aggressive foreign policy. Thus, there were those eager to have an enemy, the raison d'etre for the enterprise. With growing wealth and potential power, American decision-makers begin to weigh the strategic question. Is the ocean a means of protective isolation or an avenue of expansion, the road that the European oceanic powers were progressing? The function of the Navy was crucial to the debate. Should it go beyond protecting trade patrolling the coast, or controlling piracy, to something more? Was it a symbol of national power, a muscle of diplomacy, a force to exercise in global politics? The USA was already emerging as a global economic power. What about global political power, people began to ask. Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan's 1890 book, The Influence of Sea Power on History, has its impact, preaching the need for colonies as well as a battle fleet as the chief instruments of power. The book appeared as the U.S. was becoming the world's largest manufacturer and the world's richest nation. We see a decisive change of the national mood toward imperialism, leading to an interest in overseas colonies. It represents the conjunction of an intellectual elite 
with a public seared by depression in 1893, worrying about industrial stagnation, with overproduction generating a class of permanently unemployed. This was a time of rapid and profound social changes. Does it sound like today? The nation no longer seems as homogeneous, with a richer ethnic mix, thanks to a flood of impoverished immigrants that many find alarming. The rapidity of change provokes a confrontational mood. At home, this was expressed not only in ambivalence towards immigrants, but also hostility between business and labor. Looking abroad, it reflected the infectious European example, the growing intensity of national rivalries. In Britain, jingoism was coined to describe the mood. In the London music halls, they sang, We don't want to have to fight, but by jingo, if we do, we've got the men and we've got the ships and we've got the money, too. Chauvinistic nationalism inflamed increasing race consciousness, fed by notions of racial superiority on biological anthropological theories now largely discredited. Mahanism, as well as offering a new strategic theory advocating battleships, touted an apocalyptic interpretation of history, a coming contest between the Oriental culture of East Asia versus a Christian West, Confucius versus Christ in a clash of civilizations. Imperialism resounded in the work of philosopher Brooks Adams, scion of the great Adams family, who proclaimed, A nation must expand or die. He argued that imperialism is natural, necessary, and irrepressible. All this talk fueled raw feelings fanned for the common man by the new penny press, the cheap, mass circulation newspaper embodied by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. This certainly contributes to American willingness to go to war. In 1896, the GOP rides to power as the party of energy and change dedicated to advancing economic growth and enhancing national power. But President McKinley was a cautious man and an exceedingly shrewd politician. In his inaugural, he said, We want no wars of aggression. War should never be entered upon until every agency of peace has failed. This sentiment proved to be more rhetorical than real. Why, then, did Americans choose to go to war? Join us next time for Episode 25, Why Fight Spain? Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Foray. 
Goodbye until next time.